Oh, sure, Gavin. Let me ask you, where's England's space program? Yes. The following podcast contains... Oh, what the f*** did you do that for? Hey, that was... Don't swear. What are we? Werewolves, not swearwolves. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you sent that space station into orbit knowing that it would eventually crash uncontrollably back to Earth, <laughs> what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host Dave Bledsoe, this is episode number 413, the Skylab Fallout edition of the show, where we talk about the summer of Skylab. Stay tuned. The What the Hell Were You Thinking podcast is brought to you by Celestial Underwriters, the only insurance policy that covers damages incurred by falling space debris. They say the odds of being hit by lightning are high, and the odds of being hit by a meteor are even higher, but that doesn't mean zero. Can you afford to take the chance that a falling hunk of space detritus won't damage your property or injure you personally? You can't. That's where Celestial Underwriters comes in. We offer flexible and affordable plans that indemnify you for damages or injuries as a result of natural or man-made objects falling from space. Sleep soundly knowing that you're covered should a meteor impact or an out-of-control space junk made by Elon Musk slam into your property or your person. Celestial Underwriters, the odds are astronomical, but our rates are down to earth. British Airways say they may delay their flights as America's Skylab space station falls to Earth in the next 36 hours. Some countries say they'll stop all their flights as Skylab comes down, but the chances of it hitting anyone are said to be very remote. Tonight's check on the 85 tons of Skylab shows that the space lab's less than 120 miles up and will fall out of the sky late tomorrow or early on Wednesday. Skylab's next close approach to Britain will be at half past 11 tomorrow morning. It'll cross the Sillies and Guernsey. Our science editor, Peter Fairley, assesses the chances of anyone being hit by Skylab. If anyone sold your hat to stop bits of Skylab falling on your head, and several thousand have been sold in America, you've probably wasted your money. The team of British scientists who've been tracking Skylab for ITN now predict it won't fall on Britain. There were fears that it might hit Cornwall, but its orbit now is taking it further south. But it will fall somewhere, because what goes up must come down. And according to the North American Air Defense Command, who are using computers to plot its descent second by second, 90% of the world's population, that's 4 billion people, are theoretically at risk. The summer of my 10th year on this planet, the year 1979, was particularly fraught for me. My dad had been long-term unemployed. We were living in a housing project. My parents were fighting a lot about money, and it was possible... They might even get a divorce. Oh, I am sorry to hear that. Hear what? Oh, oh, that. Oh, nothing came out of that. My dad wound up joining the Air Force a little later that year, and by the time I turned 11, things were the best they'd ever been. No, what I was worried about that tense summer of 79 was something far more concerning. I was worried about being hit by a chunk of a falling space station. Seems like a strange thing to do, too. Oh, please, everyone was worried about it. It was all over the news every night for weeks. You see, NASA had put up this space station, and uh, they neglected to figure out some way to make sure it didn't crash into a populated area when it inevitably came down. Might not have been the best idea. That's what everyone was saying at the time. 
So it was my cousins and I that decided we would take matters into our own hands. That's even worse! I mean, we weren't going to go to NASA or something to try and take control of the situation, but we were going to take preemptive action on our end of things. We were going to build a Skylab fallout shelter at my grandparents. This was your big plan? We were children. Did you think we were going to come up with something brilliant? So, we spent the better part of that summer digging into the side of a mountain to make a shelter that we could crawl into in case tons of space debris came hurtling towards Reliance, Tennessee. You see, my grandparents had been fitfully digging a storm shelter into the side of the mountain for years, achieving nothing more than a U-shaped divot in the hillside. So, we decided we would dig into that space. And you know what we discovered? You see how stupid you are. Exactly. Also, we discovered how angry my grandfather would get when he found his picks and shovels lying in the dirt after he got tired of trying to dig a tunnel into the side of a mountain. He was a gentle man, but he could get touchy when his tools were fucked with. Needless to say, we didn't finish our shelter by the time the station finally began its fiery descent of the Earth's atmosphere, and admittedly, it turns out we were in really very little danger in the first place since the wreckage came down literally on the other side of the world from southeast Tennessee. But when you're 10 years old and have never been anywhere else, distance like that doesn't mean a lot to you. However, I did learn one thing. I didn't like doing hard work, and digging was hard work. And that's a lesson that's stuck with me all of my life. That's why I'm a podcaster now. Which brings us to this week's topic. July 11th, 1979, 44 years ago, the week this this recording, NASA's Skylab space station came back to Earth with great fanfare and very little control. Crashed. So, in my ongoing search for content, I uh, was reminded of this by another podcast I listened to this day in esoteric political history, and I decided that I would... Uh, you know, appropriate the topic. By appropriate, do you mean steal? One cannot steal history. It is in the public domain. Besides, Jody Avergan did not have a cool story about digging a shelter when he was a kid, nor did he does he reference getting drunk on a toxically strong fruity drink, as I will, ere this show is over. Before I can tell you about the crash, we should explain how and why the space station was crashing in the first place. And it all begins with the moon. Or rather, our spending so much fucking money to get to the moon in the first place and deciding we weren't going to go there anymore. What happened? Did one astronaut come back? Yeah. I went to the moon. <laughs> Sucked. For the full story of our trips to the moon, see episodes 219 and 220. Stupid <laughs> Seeing as how the moon sucked and we weren't going there anymore, there were these few... Rockets just lying around that had already been paid for, and NASA decided that we really should do something with them. It'll just go to waste. Now, Congress wasn't going to give NASA any more money, but they had already paid for moon trips, and they would spring for a few more dollars for somewhere a little closer. I like Florida. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, astro by astronomical terms, Earth orbit is basically NASA's backyard. So the engineers at NASA, including NASA's favorite little Nazi, Idealistic Verna von Braun decided they would build a space station. Just keep circling. 
I mean, compared to science fiction's NASA's plans were a little more pedestrian than the aforementioned tacky Kardashian fascist eyesore on television. What they would do is they would take all the unused parts of those Saturn V rockets they had just taken up space in Alabama, retrofit them, and shoot them into space with other hunks of Saturn Vs. Do what now? You see, the Saturn Vs were basically three rockets in one. First stage got it off the Earth, the second into orbit, and the third shot it towards the moon. So they took the moon stage, installed a bunch of stuff in it to keep people alive in orbit, connected some solar panels, and plopped it on two other stages that they needed to get it in orbit, and then put some astronauts in another rocket and sent that one up to meet with a part that was already there. Pretty routine stuff, really. Turns out, not so much. From Space.com, quote, Skylab launched into space on May 14th, 1973. However, a micrometeoroid shield, which was supposed to shelter Skylab from debris and also act as a thermal blanket, accidentally opened about 63 seconds into the launch. The shield and a solar array tore off and another solar array was damaged. When the meteoroid shield ripped loose, it disturbed the mounting of workshop solar array wing number two and caused it to partially deploy, NASA wrote. The exhaust plume of the second stage retro rocket impacted the partially deployed solar array and literally blew it into space, unquote. Oh, come on, that'll buff right out. More from space.com, quote, The space station experienced communications problems with the antenna as a result of the incident, but that was the least of NASA's worries. Without protection from the macrometeor shield, temperatures inside the station rose to intolerable levels. Also, the remaining solar arrays were only generating 25 watts of power, according to NASA. Flight controllers faced a dilemma. If they oriented the station toward the sun to maximize power generation, temperatures rose too high for the crew and equipment. But an attitude that minimized the heat significantly reduced power generation, unquote. Long story short, shit's fucked up. So, needless to say, instead of sending a crew up to do science shit like NASA had planned, now they had to send a crew up to unfuck the shit that was fucked up. I didn't use that kind of language on this day in esoteric political history, which is why you are listening to this podcast. The crew had to start training for an entirely new mission and do it quickly and most importantly, cheaply. And if there's one thing I've learned in doing many shows about the space program, it is that NASA astronauts do not like being told to do things quickly and cheaply. They uh, believe that doing things this way stands a very real chance of killing them, and they were quite clear. I didn't sign up for this shit. And they were quite right. All that being said, it was just 10 days later that the crew launched on the mission to repair Skylab. The first objective on arrival was to get the lights turned on. As I mentioned earlier, one of the solar arrays was torn off and another was damaged during the launch and had not deployed. So the astronauts had to climb out on the hull of Skylab and... Try jiggling the handle. Lest you think I am exaggerating, a piece of metal was jammed and that's what kept the solar array from deploying and this was more or less the instruction Houston gave the crew on how to fix the problem. This, as you can imagine, did not sit well with the crew. Again, from space.com, quote... Crew members emerged from an expected communications blackout in a foul mood, according to official NASA ac accounts of the mission. The astronauts were venting their frustration with four-letter words while Houston repeatedly tried to remind them that communications had resumed, unquote. But friends, I looked for audio of this, and technically all the material from the space pro program is available to the public, but NASA doesn't make things like that easier to find. Also... My research budget is basically the cost of tea bags for Gavin. Nor was this the only problem the first crew experienced because the command module that was supposed to dock with Skylab so they could get on board kind of, kind of didn't. Okay, I'm gonna get out and push. 
Which, again, is basically what happened. They had to depressurize the capsule, and then all three of the crew had to get out and make repairs to the connections so the module could dock with the station. Also, remember when I told you about the temperature problems a few minutes ago, how it got too hot for the astronauts to work on the station? Well, th that hadn't been fixed. I want the fuck! It was still unpleasantly warm on the station because they had to move the station to keep it from being deadly. They were still not getting enough power for the solar arrays to keep the air conditioning on. Clearly, a solution was required, and NASA had one. I think it can be a big umbrella, but, like, also not an umbrella. So the crew yet did yet another spacewalk to install a very large piece of mylar reflective material as a big-ass window shade in space. Was it a great solution to the problem? No. Was it a solution to the problem? Yeah, pretty much. The entire first mission was, was basically made up on the fly, which speaks well for the improvisational skills of NASA during the Skylab missions, but not so well as the actual planning part of the mission, because this was but the first of many malfunctions, blunders, fuck-ups, and semi-mutinies that, that plagued America's first operational space station. The first two missions were filled with broken shit spacewalks to fix them, and it was like someone sent a Ford into space to fix the repair daily. N know what I'm saying? No, Dave. Ah, oh, okay. Never mind then. What I mean is the entire program was slapdash to the point that for the entire operational life of the station, there was a rocket and capsule on standby so it could fly up and rescue the astronauts on board of Skylab. Uh, how reassuring. Actually, considering some of late NASA's later calls, that actually kind of was reassuring. Not that everything went wrong. In many ways, Skylab was a tremendous success, paving the way for the International Space Station and even the Hubble and the James Webb. Over three crewed missions, there was a lot of science done. Real Clear History lays out the big picture. Quote, The astronauts on Skylab and scientists on the ground learned a lot about the effects of living in space on the human body. It was determined that humans could exist in zero-gravity environments for sustained periods of time, provided they engaged in daily exercise and a nutritious diet. Among Skylab's greatest achievements were its studies of the sun. The station included an impressive collection of observation equipment that included several types of cameras and telescopes. Over the course of three missions, astronauts gathered data on the sun that revolutionized scientists' understandings of the sun's solar cycle, its impact on Earth's weather, and magnetic fields, even the formation and orbit of the planets. Over 300 separate experiments were conducted on Skylab. Beyond solar observations, there were various medical experiments, there were technology and operational experiments conducted to test components in space, and a series of experiments conducted on behalf of American high school students who submitted their ideas in advance, unquote. Additionally, the crew set records for the longest duration in space that wouldn't be broken until the Soviet-slash-Russian Mir stations and the ISS. It gave valuable insight into the effects of microgravity on the human body, which are still referenced today. Skylab's observation of the comet Kohotek, the comet of the century in the 1970s, were the first orbital astronomy of a comet in human history. But most importantly, Skylab featured the first and only shower in space. I mean, you can imagine how ranked that place got after a couple of weeks, so of course, they had a shower in space. Now, admittedly, the showers were, uh... Low flow? I don't like the sound of that. Smithsonian Magazine explains, quote, Astronauts took cumbersome showers in a tube-like contraption. To make sure they did not float away, astronauts put their feet in foot restraints at the base of the shower. Then they attached a pressurized portable water bottle to the ceiling, which connected to a hose and a shower head. The astronauts then pulled a fireproof cylinder-shaped shower wall up from the floor and attached it to the ceiling. Then it was shower time. 
They lathered liquid soap all over themselves, sprayed water through the push-button shower head. They had to suction up the suds and water into a collection bin. Wayward water could pose a hazard to the electronics instruments on the space station, and NASA strictly rationed water and liquid soap on Skylab. A New York Times article said that each astronaut was given approximately six pints of water per shower. From start to finish, a shower on Skylab took over two hours on average, unquote. These days, the crew of the International Space Station uses non-rinse soap and blobs of water. They just sort of roll around their skin to rinse off, and then it all gets sucked back into the pee recycler. I had to drink my own pee. Still, Skylab's days of crewed missions were numbered. Not because of the mechanical difficulties, by the third mission, they'd actually things pretty along pretty well. The last crew stayed in space nearly 90 days. What ended Skylab was something far more insidious. Budget cuts. Between the amount of money and Nixon was sending to Vietnam to pretend like they could fight a war on their own and the steady rise of inflation, not even Congress could justify spending millions of dollars to send three dudes into space so they could spend a couple of months farting in a tin can and taking notes on the parts per million of their flatus. The Skylab was shelved. How do you shelve a 77-ton space station in a low Earth orbit? Well, I'm going to turn off the light. I'm going to close the door. And then you fly back to Earth. They just left it there. It had food, water, oxygen, everything they needed to go back because they had planned on going back eventually. Now, we tend to think that things like space stations stay where they're put. After all, no gravity in space, right? Wrong. The pull of the Earth is constant on an orbiting object, and the speed of that object is what keeps it from crashing back to the Earth, and the Skylab had only rudimentary controls to keep it oriented in a certain direction, but no major thrusters to speed it up or th slow it down. Once they parked it in orbit, it was going as fast as it would ever go, and slowly but surely, it began to slow down. This is about science. The final crewed mission used their rocket to push the station into a higher orbit, and NASA hoped it'd be fine until they could get the space shuttles up and running so they could go up there and keep it up longer. The plan was it would last at least 10 years. But uh, strong sunspots and solar winds began to slow down the station sooner than expected, and delays in the space shuttle program meant that there was no way to save it. So Skylab was going to have to crash into the Earth. Remember when I said there was just said there were no thrusters? Well, that also means they couldn't control when or where it crashed into the earth. Yeah, that sounds bad. All across the world, newspapers and TV news ran stories about this out of control, which it wasn't, just, just not very well controlled, 77-ton hunk of space junk, smashing into our poor defenseless planet. Again from Smithsonian Magazine, quote, Meanwhile, the media had stoked interest in the descent and a chicken little the skyless fall alarmism, be it both serious and humorous, arose. The Washington Post alone ran some 30 stories about Skylab's demise from April through July of 1979. People worried where the debris would land as Skylab disintegrated and burned during its high-speed passage through the atmosphere. And some joked about being doomsday targets or placed bets on its point of impact. The political and diplomatic consequences would not be trivial if death or destruction occurred, unquote. Here's one such article from the Washington Post on July 7th, 1979. Quote, should Skylab fall at 3 p.m. Wednesday as predicted, it will begin to break up over Washington, Idaho, and Wyoming, and then follow a long curving path that takes it over Nebraska, Missouri, Tennessee, Alabama, and the Florida Panhandle, Cuba, and Venezuela before the path ends in the South Atlantic. Its largest and heaviest pieces would fall at the end of the breakup over the Atlantic off the east coast of South America, unquote. Another article took the agency and the government to task for its failure to plan ahead, quote, 
But the ignominious end of the orbital warp shot also represents the fruit of a seemingly unrelated series of decisions and miscalculations made in Congress, the White House, and NASA headquarters on Independence Avenue and the Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama. And it's also a neat symbol of the malaise that has hit the once-proud civilian space program in the decade after its triumphal landing on the moon. For Skylab is almost literally falling into the gap between the flush years of the Apollo program and the cool cost efficiency of the coming era of the space shuttle, unquote. Another article talked about the impact of the impact, quote, Just where Skylab would fall was the talk of the world when NASA announced that the space station would be crashing back to Earth at an undetermined location. There was Skylab jokes and even a Skylab song. Some of the more fearful took out insurance policy just in case the enormous satellite happened to land on their property, unquote. And pod friends, people were in to the idea of Skylab crashing. There were Skylab hard hats for sale that would protect the wearer from falling debris. It being the 70s, novelty t-shirts were very much in vogue, proclaiming somewhat optimistically that the wearer had survived the crash of Skylab. As mentioned in the Post article, there was insurance to protect you if Skylab hit your house. People in the projected path were seriously told to hide in storm cellars and basements during the interval where it was overhead. And some people painted white X's on roofs as target for the debris. And before long, the entire thing took on a very American sense of silliness, meaning, of course, that there was money to be made. I do love America. A 1979 article in Time magazine shows how Americans embraced the day of the crash. Quote, Despite... The perils, many Americans seem to take a perverse pleasure in spoofing the unwelcome visitor from space. Skylab stimulated a lot of harmless hucksterism, revived some old promotional gimmicks, and even became an excuse to throw parties. Inevitably, Chicken Little emerged as the dominant theme, now crying, the Skylab is falling, the Skylab is falling. The analogy was not apt, but feathers and beaks were the dress of the day for Skylab watch parties from Minneapolis to Manhattan. Guests at the first and last annual Greater New Orleans Skylab's observation party, of which a drink would stem that I will talk about before this show is over, were asked to bring binoculars, telescopes, and crash helmets. Jay Schatz, owner of a luxury high-rise apartment building on Chicago's near north side, scheduled a sub-basement party for tenants that would begin two hours before Skylab was expected to break up. Radio stations eagerly joined the hoopla. Ohio's WNCI-FM Columbus offered $98,000 to the first Ohioan, bringing in a locally found piece of Skylab wreckage within 98 hours of impact. In Atlanta, callers could win yellow t-shirts bearing a bullseye and the words, I'm an official WQXIAM79 Skylab target. There were many variations on the theme. New Hampshire attorney John Algren advertised free legal services for people hit by falling pieces of Skylab outside of his Portsmouth's office. But he saw a serious side to the event, too. People feel at the mercy of forces they cannot control, he explained. Concerned is mild, but it's there. An ad hoc Spokane, Washington group called Skylab Self-Defense Society hung a 15-foot bullseye on the side of a downtown office building that suggested make Spokane the target for Skylab's landing. If you give the government a target to shoot at, it's bound to miss. That's our greatest protection. Throughout the United States, Skylab survival kits, usually including plastic helmets and targets, were selling well. There were also numerous office lotteries based on where or when Skylab would fall. At the White House, Presidential Secretary, Press Secretary Jody Powell was said to have $2 right in on his best impact guest, the Arabian Sea, unquote. Like your humble pod host, 
Some people decided to take matters into their own hands. From yet another Washington Post article where psychics tried to use telekinesis to push the station into a higher orbit. I'm not making this up. Quote, a test in the age-old belief of mind over matter was staged by the Brookline Psychoenergetics Institutes, which represents psychoenergetics and psychic energy and serves as a holistic health center. We were intrigued with the idea of creating a world project to see if the power of all those minds working together was strong enough to raise Skylab in its orbit, said Porter Thompson, an astrology counselor at the Institute here. By coincidence a, of cosmic vibrations, the same idea at about the same time struck Mike Harvey, an award-winning program director and promotional wizard at WFTL AM in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and his psychic announcer, Bryant, who has broadcasted live above the Bermuda Triangle. The two forces docked, and an instant meditation network was created with radio stations in the United States, Great Britain, and Australia, receiving their Skylift for Skylab programs, a potential audience of over 12 million people. We are going to use our energy so Skylab will not fall, so our space program will not be interrupted, she droned. Psychic Yuri Geller, the silverware bending frame, picked it up. You have to believe. Don't think this is a ridiculous experiment. It's not. It's serious. Help us push Skylab higher and higher. And then Dr. Burl Payne of the Psychoenergetics Institute chimed in. If your consciousness move out into space, you see the clouds of Earth whirling and swirling before you. Get the idea of Skylab going faster and faster and higher. And as a flute played hypnotic music in the background, he directed the many minds to tune into the sun and the universe, unquote. Needless to say, the uh, program failed. Uh, line from that post article, quote, well, it looks like chicken little one, psychokinesis nothing, said Massachusetts Institute of Technology gravity researcher Robert Riesenberg, reaffirming his faith in orthodox physics, unquote. It was the 70s, y'all. You just had to be there. Skylab hit the atmosphere at 437 Universal Time, July 11th, and broke up over the Indian Ocean into hundreds of pieces, most of which burned up in the atmosphere far from any landmass. A few pieces did crash into the Australian outback, resulting in no injuries to people, a $400 littering fine levied against NASA, and the loss of $10,000 to the San Francisco Examiner newspaper. What? Say that again? The examiner rather foolishly offered 10 grand reward for anyone who could get a chunk of Skylab to their offices within 72 hours of the crash, gambling that it would not crash in the United States. What they did not count on was one Stan Thornton, a 17-year-old beer truck delivery driver in Western Australia. When small chunks of debris fell into his mother's garden shed, he grabbed them up and began making his way to San Francisco. Quoting now from a San Francisco Gate article, quote, the 17-year-old beer hauler had heard about the examiner's race on the radio, so he bagged up the chunks and tried to figure out how to get to San Francisco in two days. Stan had never left the state of Western Australia before. He had no passport, he'd lost his birth certificate, and had to get his evidence to a newsroom 10,000 miles away to claim his cash in 72 hours. An Australian radio station rallied to his side, had a passport expedited, and got him on a Learjet, first to Melbourne, then to Sydney, then to Honolulu, and then to San Francisco. A limousine provided by Qantas rushed the teenager up Highway 101 to the examiner's newsroom, where he handed over his evidence, having beaten the deadline by eight hours, unquote. The newspaper gave him a check for 10 grand. There is so much more to this story that I could tell you, 
But we are running so long right now with this. Let's just say that Stan Thornton's story could be an episode in and of itself. And I have yet to talk about the biggest thing that came out of the crash. The next drink. Down in New Orleans, the infamous Pat O'Brien's bar did what they do so well. Make dangerously intoxicating cocktails. That's where the hurricane comes from, y'all. And if you've ever had one, you probably don't remember it. As the summer of Skylab became a thing, bartenders created a drink to celebrate the occasion and to accurately replicate what it might be like to be hit by a chunk of fiery debris hurling down from the atmosphere, rather like Douglas Adams' famous pan-galactic gargle blaster. The effect of which is like having your brain smashed out with a slice of lemon wrapped around a large gold brick. The Skylab Fallout, which is blue, contains a shot of absolute vodka, a shot of Bacardi 151 rum, a shot of gold tequila, a shot of gin, a shot of Everclear, and a shot of blue curacao poured into pineapple juice. And it tastes like someone has poured blue food coloring into a glass full of paint stripper. If blue has a taste, it is this drink. If you drink one of these, you will forget your troubles. If you drink two, you will forget the rest of the night. If you drink three, you will forget your pants. If you drink four, you'll forget everything and find yourself naked in a parking lot screaming at the sky. Ask me how I know this. Go ahead, ask me. I won't be able to tell you because I, I don't remember anything that happened after I did this. You're going to rehab. Skylab the station, not the drink. The drink is definitely not a failure. But Skylab the station wasn't a failure compared to some of NASA's later adventures. It was stunningly successful. I mean, no one died for a publicity stunt or anything. And science is sometimes messy and sometimes it comes crashing into the atmosphere in a hail of molten metal. The trick is to make sure that the spaceship is empty when it does so, which NASA actually did this time. And the hysteria that surrounded the crash was largely good-natured goofiness. Aside from a few grifters, most of the money was made it was by people who sold pet rocks. It was perfect for the 1970s. Even Stan Thornton, the kid from Australia who brought the debris from San Francisco and won a life-changing amount of money for him, wound up going back home to his hometown in Esperance, Australia, getting married, raising a family, and didn't try to get a reality show out of the deal. Admittedly, there were no reality shows in 1979, but there were people who attempted to become famous for smaller things than what Stan Thornton did. And in the end, everything turned out fine. No harm was done except for like a hole in the side of a hill in my grandparents' house. And one night I got really shit-faced on Skylab fallouts and took my shirt and pants off and danced on stage like an idiot. And that was bad enough. Thank God there was no social media in the 1990s. <laughs> that is it for the show this week. No big thoughts on the wrap, just a moment in history and some drink recommendations. If you're wondering, when the ISS comes down in a decade or so, they've got a good plan in place to steer it into the middle of the Pacific Ocean, to which I say, boring. Just let that shit tumble in. By 2033, the whole planet will be on fire anyway, so what's one more disaster? And maybe, maybe, we'll get a new Pat O'Brien's cocktail out of it if, you know, if New Orleans is, hasn't sunk into the ocean by then. Speaking of disaster, rate and review this show so others can find it, listen to it, and ponder your disastrous choices in podcast. If you want to kick us a dollar so we can afford a Skylab Fallout it is, uh, and the rehab that comes after Skylab Fallouts, because honestly, you will need it, then hit us up at patreon.com slash what the hell were you thinking? 
Do all the things Jeremy tells you to do in the closing so you won't have to steer the show into an ocean landing or something. And so for me, Dave, Skylab, Skylab, round and round it goes, Bledsoe, producer. Sometimes 77 tons of space debris headed straight for you and me. Is that metric tons or imperials? Gavin! And all the fictional NASA execs on this show, we want to say, it's got everything our tax money can buy, except for power brakes and a steering wheel. And we'll see you all next week. Round and round it goes, where it falls, nobody knows. 77 tons of outer space debris headed straight for you and for me. Well, it's got everything our tax money can buy. Expensive paraphernalia for studying the sky. Just a couple things that they left out in the deal. What the hell like were you thinking? Stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional Skyland, minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What the Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. It is the Enterprise.